Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word. And as we gather this weekend to worship and to come into your presence, we, uh, we come with gratitude and humility and the fact, Lord, that you have granted us freedom through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, freedom from the guilt of sin, and you've granted us freedom as you join us here. Your presence is freely poured out upon us through the blood of your Son. And so, God, as we celebrate our nation and its birth and its beginnings, we have had many wonderful things in our history that has given you glory, but we also had many things in our history that has disappointed you as well. But even through that, God, you have given us your mercy. And for that, Lord, we celebrate today. We thank you. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us in your word today that you would teach us what this mercy is that you grant us and the mercy that you expect us to give to one another. How is it, Father, that we live as your people? How is it that we just come and, and give you glory in our days as we live and work? Teach us God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, were the first four of the Beatitudes in this list of Jesus' sermon. And the first four Beatitudes really dealt mostly with the inner self, who we are inside, who God is making us to be in His kingdom. Because without God doing the work in us, without the Holy Spirit changing us and making us into, Christ, into the likeness of Christ, we have no part of the kingdom. And so the first four Beatitudes, verses 3 through 6, actually deal with the inner self, the principles of the heart and the mind. Now we're looking at verses 7 through 10, and today primarily verse 7. The, the latter half of the Beatitudes list here is now going to look at the outward applications of what God has done in the inner self. How can we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven apart from God, first of all, changing us from the inside. Now, once that has occurred, and as that continues to occur in our lives, there are outward expressions of the inner workings of God within us. Amen? The problem is, too many Christians try to turn this around. They want to do the outside expressions of what God is expecting us to do in hopes that that might change the inside or they just ignore the inner change and just focus on the external expression. Jesus here in his Sermon on the Mount, I think it's not insignificant that he begins his Beatitudes with working on the inner self first. 
the principles of the heart and mind first so that the outward expressions will be glorifying to the Lord. Now, let's take a look here at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We sometimes do not fully understand what Jesus is speaking here because we fully do not understand this concept of mercy. Mercy is this dealing with someone amidst their troubled circumstances. Grace and mercy go together, but grace and mercy are two totally different things. Grace is actually the favor poured out upon someone when they do not deserve it. Unmerited favor. You are my favorite, or I have favor for you. I love you. I consider you valuable, especially because you do not deserve this. That's grace. Now, mercy, on the other hand, is part of the expression of grace. Mercy is actually the loving on someone else, concern for someone in the midst of their circumstances. Now, you have to have the grace in order for the mercy to apply. But think about this. How many people in this room have ever been in circumstances where you found yourself in trouble? Nobody has ever been in trouble. All the kids are going, yep. Been there, done that, right? Even as we grow older, as we are mature adults and we start our own families, are there times where even as parents, we are still in trouble with our own parents? Right? Been there, done that? Yeah. My father will always tell me, now, son, when he starts that, he says, now, son, I'm 51 years old. Yes, father. Right? Mercy is concern for other people in the midst of their circumstances. And so we express mercy upon them because they do deserve perhaps a certain outcome. Circumstances and choices that we make will always result in consequences. There are consequences to everything we do. Now, consequences are not always negative. Consequences can be positive. Because if we are in a circumstance or or choose a certain action and it is the right moral thing, an honorable thing, then what are the circumstances or the consequences of that? The consequences are blessing. The consequences are peace. But if we make choices that are perhaps not the right choices and act in a way that is perhaps not correct, what are the consequences of that? Clearly pain and misery, suffering. Mercy is an attitude towards someone in the midst of their circumstances. Now, this is what Jesus is speaking about. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, again, let's be reminded that this idea of blessing here is actually an attitude of happiness. Uh, I've I've read one translation and one commentary said it's actually more, it's not just mere happiness, it's actually a state of bliss. If we, if we are practicing mercy and we are receiving mercy, according to G- Jesus here in verse 7, we will be in a state of blessedness, a state of bliss, a state of happiness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To be merciful, what does this mean? To be merciful is to look upon other people, to look upon those particularly who are, who are poor in spirit. You remember how the beginning of the Beatitudes started, right? Jesus initiated here in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If our spirit is in poverty, if our spirit is not exactly in alignment with the Father, we're in a pretty dire situation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So mercy then, to be merciful, is to look upon someone who is in poor of spirit and recognizing their need for mercy, and then we are led to show mercy to them. Now, let's make sure we don't turn this around. Where does mercy come from? In this context of Jesus' sermon, mercy does not begin with our initiating mercy. Because many of us in this room, if we see somebody who, have, who has made dire choices and they've, they're in a pretty poor situation, how many of us would just look at them and go, well, you just made your bed, lay in it, right? That'd be my attitude, right? You made the choice, live with it. That'd be, that'd be my choice, right? You did it, learn from it. But, you know, mercy is looking upon someone in their need. But where do we learn about mercy? It's clearly... We learn from, about mercy from the one who gives us mercy first. If we've ever been the recipient of mercy, either from someone that we know, or more importantly, if we've ever, if we fully understand the mercy that God pours out upon us. Can we say that with an amen? Is God merciful with his creation? He sure is. And especially in the moment of salvation, it is God's mercy that he's pouring out his grace upon us in the midst of our circumstances and our sinful state, that's how we first understand and experience mercy. And God is teaching us here through Jesus that we are blessed are the merciful. We are happy as we are merciful toward others for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is teaching here that this happiness or this blessedness comes through the endurance of affliction. Now, we endure our afflictions, we endure our circumstances, our miseries, our own, but we also endure and share with others in the midst of their circumstances and their miseries. How many of us are willing to walk alongside someone who is in a dire situation and just put our arm around them in an act of mercy and just weep with them, and cry with them, and stand with them, even in the midst of their turmoil. And I'm not talking about just a a, a platitude of, well, bless your hearts. I'm talking about literally getting down into the mud with them. That's an act of mercy. Mercy is this act of meeting people in the midst of their troubled circumstances. And Jesus is saying if we meet people in the midst of their trouble and we endure the afflictions of others as well as enduring the afflictions of our own self, then we're actually going to reach and add a state of happiness and we will be blessed because God's presence is in the midst of that. That's an act of the kingdom. It's in the very way that the kingdom is expressed where we meet people in the midst of their mud and their misery. The other thing about this is Jesus is teaching that we are happy and blessed because we are giving aid to those who need aid and comfort. That's an act of mercy. We participate with them and we give them aid 
And we literally clothe ourselves with other people's hardships. We are not in the midst of a hardship, but we are willing to actually put on the coat of hardship and share that with others. That's an act of happiness. That's a state of being where God is present. That's a state, that's actually a description of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus is saying here. Now think about this. How many of you would want to be a citizen of a kingdom knowing that requirements for citizenship is to engage with others who are in their misery? In order to be a citizen of the kingdom, Jesus is saying this is what to expect. We're going to endure one another's suffering and our misery through mercy. And that brings happiness. You see how the kingdom of heaven here contradicts the world? (laughs) You know, the happiest place on earth has been called Disney World down in Orlando. Y'all know that? That's that's the slogan, right? The happiest place on earth. How many people have actually been to the happiest place on earth and looked around and scratched your head and thought, we're all miserable here? Anybody been there? You're hot, you're thirsty, the kids are cranky, the lines are too long for your favorite ride, the food is way too expensive, not to mention the admission price, but oh, we're happy. Amen? Because, you know, the world defines happiness in a way that is much different than the Jesus is expressing here. Happiness, this state of bliss in the kingdom of heaven, is seen in enduring hard, troubled times together. That's happiness, according to Jesus. Now, why is he teaching on this? Number one, clearly Jesus is, is the Sermon on the Mount is an ex, it's a really good summary and outline for what the Christian life is like because the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is establishing here is so opposite of what the world sees as a kingdom. You see, what Jesus is speaking about here, at the time that Jesus is teaching, clearly, who is in power? The Roman Empire dominated the world. Now, one common philosophy in Roman culture, a very common theme within Roman society, which is really not much different than our own current circumstances, is that mercy is a disease of the soul. Secular ways of thinking is, if you grant mercy to people, you're troubled. Avoid all misery and circumstances. Avoid those who are in trouble, because if you act, if, if you act mercifully toward them, your soul must be somehow damaged and weak. You're, the Romans saw strength and power for yourself as ideal. You do not look upon the misery and the suffering of others. If you remember the Roman Empire, depending on which historian you listen to, the Roman Empire had 50%, possibly as high as 80% of the population of the entire Roman Empire were enslaved. So the only ones who had the freedom and the authority and the uh, austerity to rise with wealth and power were the top 20 to 30%. Everyone else, legally and society, saw them as slaves. They were there to serve the elite. That would have been the Roman Empire. And Jesus is saying here, in a stark contrast to the way the world thinks, 
Mercy is more powerful than self-preservation and powerful justice. You see, the Romans valued strength and independence over others and from others. Likewise here, Jesus is also speaking at a time of Jewish piety. The religious leaders, yes, they saw in the old Mosaic law to show mercy toward others, but only if it is appropriate. So the pious attitude of the Jewish leaders and the the religious people also valued love and mercy for those who really only loved you first. As long as someone else is showing you mercy, then you grant them mercy. Kind of distorts the definition of mercy, doesn't it? And so, see, Jesus is actually speaking against in a, a situation in a society that saw mercy as something that really doesn't belong. They really didn't value mercy. Now, where does this come from? Jesus' teaching about the happiness of mercy clearly is the result of God granting us His mercy. That's, he's establishing the kingdom of heaven here. And so where does the act of mercy come from? God grants His mercy. And we receive mercy from others in the process. You see, because it's important that mercy is a desperately needed gift of God in order for the act of redemption to happen on behalf of sinners. Where is the sinner at? What is the circumstance that a sinner is in? Remember, mercy is an act of kindness in the midst of circumstances. And so where does God find us as sinners when He comes and He redeems us through the blood of His Son? What are the circumstances that we are in as fallen, broken creatures? Clearly, our circumstances are in pretty bad shape. Would you agree? In dire need of salvation, in dire need of love, affection, forgiveness. Mercy is necessary for that to occur. God, looking at our desperate situation and our dire need for redemption, acts with mercy toward us. Likewise, as God expresses mercy upon us, Jesus is teaching here that the Lord requires His people to follow His example and extend mercy to others. How many people in this room understand if you are redeemed and saved by the blood of Christ? That was an act of mercy. It's an act of grace because we don't deserve it, but it's an act of mercy because salvation is redeeming us out of circumstances that we are trapped like in a, like in a quicksand, like drowning in the rivers. It's an act of mercy. You see, mercy here is an application of love. You have to love that person in order to be with them and show them mercy to help them through their dire circumstances or to rescue them from their dire circumstances. So God, in an act of mercy, is actually applying love upon us and pouring out His love upon us by giving us the freedom from sin through the blood of Christ, giving us the opportunity and the path path to salvation and, and freedom from the sin that has trapped us. 
That's an act of mercy. You see, Jesus teaches that love is not conditional like the Romans and the religious pious Jews were. In other words, they only poured out love and mercy upon someone if it was appropriate, if they could get something out of it. Jesus is teaching the exact opposite. He teaches that this love that God expresses is not conditional. Likewise, our attitudes toward others, there should be no conditions on why we should love them and why we should show mercy toward them. Jesus teaches us here in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll get to this later um, in a couple of weeks, and we'll unpack this deeper. But later on in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, here's what Jesus teaches. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What is Jesus teaching here? You pour out love upon those who hate you. Anybody here got somebody who really just does not care for you at all? You'd have somebody in your life that you just, whenever you think about them, you think, they just don't really like me. Y'all got, y'all some folks like that? How would you respond to them? Well, I will hate you back. Brothers and sisters, do we do that? Sure. No, not at all. You love your brother and sister even though they, they don't like you either? <laughs> we all struggle with this, don't we? They don't like me, so meh. Jesus here is saying an act of mercy even toward your enemies is the greatest expression of God's love that he has poured out upon you because when we are in a state of sin and separated from God, are we not God's enemies? Absolutely. God has every right to wipe us off the face of the earth because we have totally thumbed our noses at him. And beyond that, we have totally disregarded God's love and mercy at all. And God, through His love and His grace, through an act of mercy, redeems us. This idea here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, listen to this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Listen to this. For He, God, makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Again, we're going to unpack this later when we get to this text in our sermon series. But the fact that God the Father, through an act of mercy, still grants life to those who are in sin, who are His enemies. That's a concept called common grace. Even though you do not acknowledge God, even though you do not realize who God is, even though you don't really care who God is, God, as an act of mercy, still grants you the ability to breathe. Because He could do that. That's an act of mercy. Jesus further shows how forgiveness here is a key part of mercy. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, although love and forgiveness are in relation to God's works in a particular way, it is with God always a proper reciprocation plus interest. You realize that even though 
you know, God, it's clearly Jesus is teaching here a reciprocal relationship between God and us, his mercy and his grace and us. But think about this. Even though there is an expectation for the citizens of the kingdom to be merciful and forgiving, it pales in comparison to the benefits plus of what God has poured out upon us. So the act of mercy and forgiveness that Jesus is teaching here is not a requirement for God's love and mercy toward us. In other words, God loved us first. He poured out mercy upon us first. As a, and then as an act of love and adoration, we are then merciful toward one another as well. It's not that we act merciful toward others so that God will love us and give us mercy. So in other words, we don't earn God's mercy, right? But because God is merciful, we, as an act of glory to His name, act mercifully toward others. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it? Honoring God means that we show mercy to others, just as He has shown mercy to us. Not that we show mercy to others so that God will be merciful toward us. That's the, turn, that's, that's the wrong turnaround. See. God has shown mercy to us first, we, likewise, as an honor to him, because he has been merciful to us, we express the same to others. How do we then think about mercy? I'm just going to close with this. I don't know if perhaps listening to this text and listening to these ideas, maybe God is stirring up something within you someone or some circumstance that you're in that you should be expressing mercy, but you don't? Because mercy is an act of the will, okay? Mercy is an act of the will. And if our will is transformed by the blood of Christ, what will that will look like? In an age of secularism, and this is where we live, right? Remember, we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. The idea of secular is defined real simply as a, a disregard for God. An absence of all things godly leaves a culture and a society that we call secular. Would you all agree that's where we are? We are no longer living in, a, in Christendom. We are living clearly in a secular age. Everything godly is discarded or at best ignored. How do we act in mercy in this age we call secular? Actually, in an age of mockery against Christianity. Think about this. Do, do we have people out there who mock the church, mock the faith, mock you as a Christian, actually talk about you as being somehow mentally deficient because you are embracing religion? Do you work with people that way, perhaps? Do you go to school with people that way? I would say more importantly than that, probably bigger than that, is that we live in an age full of media. Our lives, our identities are no longer wrapped up in a real community that we live in. Our lives and our mindset 
is clearly focused on what we watch on television, see on the internet, listen to the radio, whatever it is. That's where our mind is. What is it that the news is telling you today? That our country is falling apart? That the world is on fire? All of that is true. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of trouble in our planet. Right? We've got the coronavirus. We've got a lot of people who are suffering from that, a lot of people who are not, but we still have those who are dealing with illness and sickness where we thought that in the summer months that this would probably just decline a little bit. It's actually increasing. Now, I, I thank God that the death numbers are declining. That's a, that's a praise. But the illness is still there. We're still dealing with it. It has, devasta- it has devastated our economy. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Y'all remember back in March and April when you couldn't find milk on the shelves here at Walmart? We were all just going nuts. How are we going to get through this? Our world is centered around what the media tells us. And Christians, I'm going to say, are the biggest... They are guilty of this more than anybody. We look at what the secular world says about us and we get angry with them. And we get up on our high horse and we're going to go to battle with them. And, we're, and we are in a culture war. I'm going to say this right now. I'm, going to, I'm not going to back down on that. We are in a state of war when it comes to the state of our Christian culture. I'm not going to back, that's, that is a fact. We cannot ignore that. The question is, as Christians, how do we respond to that? Turn with me to the small book of Jude. Jude. I'm not going to give you a chapter number because there are none. <laughs> Jude, Jude is only 25 verses. It's a small letter. We understand Jude, uh, the brother of James and also the brother of Jesus, wrote this small letter, but it's powerful. Book of Jude, verse 17. Let's see how exactly this letter tells us to live in mercy. Beginning in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. That's the definition of secular. Yeah? Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What do these verses tell us as Christians? How do we respond to those who doubt the faith, who mock the faith, who mock our Lord Jesus Christ? They mock us directly. They hate everything that we stand for. How does this text tell us to respond? With mercy. Verse 22, right? Have mercy on those who doubt. How many Christians have mercy 
toward the secular pundits on the news who are sitting there spewing out hate toward anything that we hold as dear and righteous and loving and godly. Do we get mad at the news and then start gossiping and hating and backbiting and putting them down and we're going to stand up for our rights and how dare they and rah, 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 rah. That's not what Jude tells us here. That's not what Jesus tells us in His Sermon on the Mount. Have mercy on those who doubt. Do we know those who doubt the faith? Do we know those who have nothing to do with Christianity? And as Christians, how are we expressing the love of Christ to them? Do we show them mercy and love or do we spew out hate and get defensive? I want to let that settle for just a second. Because what we see here in this text is that by showing mercy to those who doubt the faith, look here in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We can hate what they stand for. We can hate the secular mindset, but we live with an act of love and mercy toward them because God loves them too. How are they going to see the cross? How are they going to see the love of Christ? if we don't show them the mercy that God has shown us? Do we really want our enemies of the faith to come into the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom? Or do we want to just keep them on the outside and say, you've condemned yourself, I'll help you throw you in the fire? Or do we want to say, God loves you. Let me show you how He's loved me. You see what Jesus is teaching here? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The teachings of Jude here is that we are to pray for those who doubt the gospel. Charles Spurgeon says this, Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Turn to sacred history and you will find that scarcely ever did a great mercy come to this world unheralded by supplication. Now supplication is that big word that literally means prayer. Being a supplicant toward God. Pouring out prayer and our heart toward Him. Can we come before God with a heart of supplication praying for those who doubt the faith? And can we show mercy toward them and ask the Lord God Almighty to work in them to bring them into the kingdom. How many people can do that? I'll be honest with you, it's impossible apart from the mercy of God. It is impossible apart from the changed heart that only Christ can bring. As we close today, we're going, this is the first Sunday of the month. And here at Sovereign Grace, we always, on the first Sunday of the month, come before the Lord's table. And we remember the act of love, the act of grace, 
But more importantly, that act of mercy that Jesus expresses to us on the cross. He died on the cross so that you and I could actually be redeemed. That's the highest act of mercy that there could be. So as we close today, I want us to think about this this ordinance that Jesus has given us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul reminds us, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do not do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul is cautioning us here that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's table, we must be careful to do so in the right attitude and the right purpose. It continues in verse 27, Who for therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this is a warning by Paul, not just individually, but also corporately. What is the attitude of the heart? What is the attitude of your individual heart as you come here? What is the attitude of our church corporately, the body of Christ coming to this table? As we participate, I want to encourage you, let this time be an act of reflection and prayer between you and the Lord. And give thanks to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. That He loved us and He forgave us. Amen. Dalton, could you play just a little bit of music while do this? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank You, Lord, for the truth of Your Word. Because it points us to the truth of Your Gospel. That although we could not save ourselves, you did not leave us in this state of separation. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we are unable to do. And that's what we remember at this moment. We give you thanks and we give you praise. And I pray, God, that you would be here in this room. That you would speak to each and every one of us individually. That as we remember this act of sacrifice of your son, that you would cause us to love you more and to be grateful even more. Let this moment be for your glory, Father. Let this moment be where we recall exactly the love that you pour out upon us. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen.